I'd like to begin this morning by reading two passages. The first is in Hosea chapter 6. Hosea is in the Minor Prophets after the book of Daniel. Hosea 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. And then Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3 verse 7. The Apostle Paul says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." Not that I have already attained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." Let's pray. Lord, we pray You'd speak right now, that You would bring life. Lord, Your kingdom is not does not consist in words, but in power. So we pray for the power of Your Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. One of the things that I appreciate most about the Bible is its honesty. At the same time that it records for us the victories of God's people, it also records for us their stumblings. There are no whitewashed saints in Scripture. Whether it's Noah's drunkenness, David's adultery and murder, the apostles' ignorance and failures, or the Corinthian church's carnality, the Bible refuses to gloss over the imperfections of God's people. And what you see instead is a lot of very flawed, unbelieving people who are loved and saved and sanctified and upheld by a very merciful and gracious God. And in light of that, I expect the group that gathers here on any given Sunday to include people who are at very different points in the race set before us that we call the Christian life. Some of you here this morning are steadfast, immovable, and you're always abounding in the work of the Lord. And some of you are like Gideon's men, In Judges chapter 8, it says they were weary, yet pursuing. And some of you are just weary. 
And what I want to do here this morning is share some things that I hope will be an encouragement to folks that are in all three groups, but especially to those that are weary. And I know there's such a thing as weary Christians because of what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, we urge you, brethren, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. And notice also what the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 12. He says, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And so I know that weary Christians exist because of what the New Testament itself says, and I also know it from personal experience because I often am one. But no matter where you are in the race right now, the call to you is press on. And that's what we read here at the very beginning. Hosea says, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. And the Apostle Paul says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. And so, Lord willing, this morning, I want us to look at six encouragements today to press on, six reminders to strengthen and empower us to run with endurance the race that's set before us, to finish the course that we're on right now. First of all, we should press on because the old country is not worth returning to. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Again, I say the first encouragement to press on today is that the old country isn't worth going back to. And in Hebrews chapter 11, after describing the faithfulness of Abel and Enoch and then Noah, Abraham, and Sarah, the author goes on to say, verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And what the author says here is true for every believer. God has called you out of this world. He's called you out of your old life. And you are now what Peter calls an alien and a stranger in this world. Jesus said, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. You can't escape it. It's a fact. It's an objective reality. You don't belong. We've been separated out and are headed towards the city that God has prepared for us. And yet, that old life in the old country is always back there. And it's luring and it's beckoning. Being a Christian's too hard. You're having to give up too much. It's not worth it anymore. Come back. Come back. And when that siren song begins, one thing we have to remind ourselves of is what it was really like back in that old country. You see, we can be like the Israelites in the wilderness. They get upset about not having enough to eat and they're tired of the food. And they say, we want to go back to Egypt. We remember the fish that we used to eat free in Egypt. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried up. And someone should have stood up and told them 
that they were being awfully selective about what they remembered. Yeah, you remember the fish. Do you remember the slavery? You remember the cucumbers. Do you remember the wickedness of your master? It dawned on me the other day that the only reason why the old life ever looks appealing to us is because we've forgotten what it was really like. First of all, what were you like back in your lost condition? Let me remind you. Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That is who you were. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, that is who you are right now. But don't just think about what you were like. Think about what your master was like back then. The devil had you in his snare and held you captive to do his will. You thought you were free and in charge. You thought that you called the shots. No one was going to tell you how to live and how to act. And so you started to experiment. And you started to toy around with things that you knew were wrong, thinking that you could stop at any time, degrading things and debasing things. And all the time, while you were simply expressing your freedom, the devil was the one holding the leash and calling the shots. And you found yourself caught up in lusts and addictions, Patterns of thought and obsessions that you could not escape from. The tables were turned. Things that you thought you controlled began to control you instead. The devil owned you and drove you to places that you never thought you would go. I had a conversation last year with a friend of mine from high school, and he was honest enough to admit to me that right now he was doing things in his life that he never would have imagined that he'd be doing. He was in bondage to a horrible master, and so were you. Is that what you want to go back to? Will you drop out of the race so you can return to that? Press on. The old country is not worth going back to. The time is already past for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. That's sobering words. Remember Lot's wife. The old country is not worth returning to. Press on to the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So the first encouragement this morning to press on because the old country is not worth going back to. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Secondly, we should press on because every resource and supply that we need to finish the race is available to us. Now, it would be one thing if we were completely left to our own resources in the midst of the Christian life, but we're not. According to the Scriptures, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We looked at that in our small groups last week. Every spiritual blessing. Peter says his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, and He's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. There's no excuse not to press on. Are you in need of strength this morning? Well, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. 
Are you thirsty this morning? Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Do you need wisdom? Well, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. I mean, we could go on and on like this. What is it that you lack here this morning? What burdens are weighing you down? What cares are pressing in on you? What need do you have? Whatever it is, I can guarantee you that the answer, the help that you need, is at your fingertips. Paul says God is able to supply all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Not just some of our needs, but all of our needs. Now you might say, well, wait a second, though. What do we have to do to get at these resources? I mean, the supply is there, but what do we have to do to get it? What do we have to do to get it? It's nice to have a room full of gold, but it's worthless if the room is locked and you don't have the key. So the question is, what do we have to do? I mean, after all, maybe God demands of us some great work, some daunting, impossible task that we have to do to get these things before he'll give them to us. And if that's the case, we're in serious trouble. But the only great work that God demands of us is three letters, ask. Mm -hmm. Ask. What is easier than asking? What is more instinctive for a child to do than ask his father for what he needs? Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7 and verse 7. The Lord teaches us here what our attitude should be when it comes to asking God. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? I mean, it's so instinctive for a child to ask their father, to ask their mother for what they need. And that's to be our attitude towards the Lord. Ask. Again, Jesus says in John 14, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And then for good measure, again, in John 16, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. All right, but there's one more problem. It's easy to ask, but what if God is unwilling to answer? What if he holds out on us like a greedy miser who has all these riches to give, but he's unwilling to give any of it up? That's a problem. But once again, the Scriptures anticipate our unbelief. Matthew 7.11, we stopped short of this verse, but there it is. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask Him? 
Isaiah 30, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He waits on high to have compassion on you. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. So not only is the the task that we have to perform easy, it's just asking. Not only that, but God is so willing, so ready to give. So press on this morning. Every resource we need to sustain us is ours for the asking. Ask and you shall receive from the hands of a gracious Father who loves to do good to His children. Ask and press on. Thirdly, third we should press on because God gives refreshment along the way. He gives refreshment along the course. If you've ever seen news clips of the Chicago Marathon or the Boston Marathon, or if you've ever competed in a long-distance race yourself, I have not, but you'll be familiar. Um, you'll be familiar with these things that are called water stations. And what it is is along the course of the race, there's these tables that are set up, and on the tables are cups full of water. And as the runners go by, usually they have somebody that's there handing them out. Uh, but as the runners go by, they can grab a cup of water or two, and they can drink it or pour it over their head or whatever. And these water stations are an absolute necessity in a long-distance race. And if they weren't there, it would be dangerous and in some cases impossible for the runners to complete the course. In the same way, God has set up water stations for us along our course. But there's a couple of big differences. First of all, the cups at our watering stations aren't filled with water, but with the presence of God himself. Again, Hosea says, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. His presence itself is in the cup. And Peter says in Acts 3, Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. It's the manifest presence of God himself that is the refreshment of his people. But a second major difference is that the exact location of the watering stations is unknown to us. When runners compete in the Boston Marathon, they're told ahead of time that there's going to be one of these watering stations every mile along the course. They know that going into it. And so they kind of have a general idea of when the next one's coming up. It's going to be every mile. There it's going to be right there. But it's not that way in the Christian life, is it? In fact, when Hosea says that God will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth, he implies that the exact time of his coming is unknown to us. We don't know for certain. In the same way that the exact time of the next rain shower is impossible to predict. We've gotten better at predicting them, but not, we're still not there yet, as anyone who watches the weather knows. <laughs> Nevertheless, the promise is there that if we press on, he will come to us. That's the promise. He will come to us like the rain. When? We don't know for certain, but we can know for certain on the basis of God's word that refreshment is on its way. He will come to us. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. And it often seems the case that the watering station will appear up around the bend when we least expect it, and at the most mundane of times, like William Cooper wrote in his hymn, sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he's singing. It comes out of nowhere at you. Boom, there it is, right in front of you, this watering station. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. 
Moses was just keeping an eye on Jethro's flock when the light surprised him. There it was, out of nowhere, a burning bush. The shepherds in Luke 2 were keeping watch over their flock by night when suddenly the glory of the Lord shone around them. Out of nowhere, you see, suddenly. And the Samaritan woman in John 4 was doing a simple, mundane task that she had done a hundred times, drawing water out of a well. But this day, the light of the world surprised her. You see, mundane surprises. Watering stations are there along the course, beloved. Times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord fill the cups. Press on. He will come to you like the rain. They're there. Press on. Fourthly, we should press on because God Himself is with us. God Himself is with us. And I can't even begin to tell you how many times this simple, basic truth has been a tremendous means of encouragement to me during a time when pressing on was the last thing that I felt like doing. It's an amazing thing, beloved, to be able to say that the infinite, eternal God of the universe is with me right now, with me. And not just in the sense that, well, God is everywhere, so he's really with everyone. No, in the sense that he's with me as his beloved child, personally, individually. And we see this truth stated two different ways in the New Testament. It's really two sides of the same coin. On one side of the coin, Jesus says in Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you always. And then on the other side of the coin, in Hebrews 13, it's kind of the negative of that, uh, it quotes the Old Testament and it has God saying to his people, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Let's look at each of these briefly. First of all, Matthew 28. Let's turn there. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, his disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. So here, the risen Lord Jesus is promising. It's a promise. It's a promise. He's promising that He will personally be with His people always. And if you look in the margin there, like in my Bible, there's a little note. Always is literally the phrase, all the days. I am with you all the days, even to the end of the age. In other words, every Christian can say on every day of his or her life, right now, the Lord Jesus is with me. That's what it's saying. All the days, at any time during any of the days that you have left on this earth, you can stop and know that Christ is with you. There's never a time when he isn't. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what circumstances you're in. No matter what, this is true for you as a Christian. I am with you always. And then Hebrews 13. The context here is a little bit different, but the truth is the same. Hebrews 13, verse 5. 
Here it's in the context of being content with what we have. Verse 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? God says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. I mean, don't you just love these absolute kind of words, these absolute, all-encompassing words? I am with you always, all-encompassing, absolute. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Again, absolute. How much plainer could God make it? What more can He say than to you He hath said, as the hymn goes? Like he said to Jacob in Genesis 28, the Lord says to each of us, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done all that I have promised you. Isn't that wonderful? You can press on knowing that God is with you. In spite of your weakness, in spite of your failure, He's with you. That's what He said. It's a promise. It's a certainty. He will not leave you until He has done all that He has promised you. Now, the fact that God is with you doesn't mean that you won't face hard trials, but it does mean that God will be with you in the midst of the trials. Joseph wound up in prison. Genesis 39 says, He was there in jail, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. So yeah, he was in jail. It was a trial. But God was in jail too. (laughs) He was with Joseph in there in the prison. In Psalm 23, David was walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But he said, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. How about Daniel? Well, God didn't keep Daniel out of the lion's den, but he was in the lion's den with Daniel. (laughs) and shut the mouths of the lions to keep them from harming him. So let us press on, knowing that with every step we take, God is with us. Every day that we face is another day to prove the truth of his promise. I am with you all the days, even to the end of the age. Isaiah says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Number six. Or is that number five? Number five, sorry. Number five, we should press on because every enemy that we face along the way is a defeated enemy. Every enemy that we face along the way is a defeated enemy. We all have enemies and forces that are arrayed against us that want to keep us from pressing on in the Christian life. Scripture teaches it and our own experience confirms it. The Bible summarizes these enemies under the categories of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The fallen world system with all of its trinkets and toys and allurements that tempt and distract. The flesh, this body of sin, this mortal body with its lusts that wage war against the soul. And the devil along with his demonic army who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The enemies are real and they are terrible. But they're all defeated enemies. 
What about the world? John 16.33, Jesus says, In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. You say, well, that's Jesus. What about us? Okay, 1 John 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, for whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? I say again, the world is a defeated enemy to the Christian. What about the flesh? Well, it too has been decisively defeated. Look at Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 verse 1. Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Now here it is. Knowing this, that our old self, literally old man, was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin, that's the flesh, might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Now, I don't like that they put the way that they said this here, and I think it's misleading. It says that our body of sin might be done away with. In the margin, it says made powerless, and that's really the idea of what this verse is teaching. It's not the idea that it's done away with in the sense that it's gone, or that it's annihilated and it's not here anymore. It's the same word that's used with regards to the devil in Hebrews chapter 2, where it says that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. It's the same word that's used here in Romans 6. You see, the devil isn't done away with. He's still around, but he's been rendered powerless. His power has been broken in the life of the Christian. It's the same thing with the flesh. The same is true. Its power has been broken and we no longer have to let sin reign in our mortal body. And that's what Paul goes on to say. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust, because its power has been broken over you. Before you were a Christian, you could not stop that. The flesh ruled over you. The, the lust of the flesh ruled over you, and you were powerless against them. But now the body of sin has been rendered powerless, and you can take a stand against it and no longer let sin reign in your mortal body and then actually put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, Paul goes on to say in Romans 8. So the world has been decisively defeated. The flesh has been decisively defeated. What about the devil? We already saw there in Hebrews 2, he's been rendered powerless, but how did that happen? We'll turn to Colossians 2. Again, showing here that the world, the flesh, and the devil are all defeated enemies. The decisive battle has already been won. Colossians 2:13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
He made you alive together with him, that's Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, the sin debt that stood against us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now this was a practice back in Romans, Roman times when a criminal was crucified, they would nail the crimes against that person to the cross. And it's, that's the imagery here, except it's not Jesus' crimes that were nailed to the cross. It was our crimes, our record of debt. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them, through him, And these rulers and authorities are the same rulers and authorities we've been talking about in our study in the book of Ephesians that we're going to be talking about. Demonic powers, principalities, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. They've been disarmed. The devil, along with his demonic armies, was disarmed by Christ on the cross. And I love that word, disarmed. It's like you just go up and you take the weapon right out of the person's hand. It's gone. They don't have it anymore. And that weapon that he had was this record of our sin debt, you see. The grounds for him accusing us, the grounds for him owning us, his rights to us, is gone. He's been disarmed of those. Because the sin debt has been paid once for all. We've been set free. The strong man has been bound. And our record of debt, this debt, this record of decrees that stood against us was nailed to his cross. So the world is a defeated enemy, the flesh is a defeated enemy, and the devil is a defeated enemy. Now that sounds good, but if these enemies are so defeated, why do we still have to struggle with them so much? And part, part of the answer is that we're just so unbelieving about what Christ has done. We don't really believe that he has defeated these enemies. We don't really believe what Romans 6 teaches. We don't really believe that the devil is a defeated enemy like Colossians 2 teaches. We don't enter into those things by faith. We're unbelieving about it. That's one big reason. But secondly, our enemies want to go down fighting. Even though the war itself is over, they continue to fight these individual battles. And this happens sometimes. I mean, think about especially back before communication was so quick. I mean, now it's lightning quick uh, with the Internet and everything else. But there was a time when you might have a pocket of soldiers holding out somewhere and they don't realize there's been a truce signed 100 miles away and the war's actually over with, and they don't know it because nobody can get word to them, and so they keep on fighting. But you see, the war is over. Their fighting is absolutely futile. It's not going to change anything. It can't change anything. The war's been done. It's over with. And that's the way it is with our enemies here. They continue to fight individual battles even though the war itself has already been fought and won by Christ. And what we have to realize is that the struggling of our enemies is the struggling of the death throes, someone that's already been cut off from life and is ready to die. The war has been won decisively. We had this old baby monitor for Adeline, and I noticed that when you, when you unplugged the monitor, it would still stay powered on for like a split second. You could still hear, even, even though you pulled the plug, you could still hear sound coming out of it for a split second, and then it would cut off. And you see, that split second is all the time that our foes have left. That's it. You see, the power's been cut. The plug's been pulled. All they have left is that split second. And they're going to fight to the death, but their source of power has been, 
has been cut off. The plug has been pulled. So we can press on knowing that every enemy we face has already had the plug pulled out, so to speak. We press on from a position of victory. We press on in triumph. Paul says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. We sing that hymn, O Church Arise. It says, come see the cross where love and mercy meet in the Son of God as the Son of God is stricken. Then see his foes lie crushed beneath his feet. For the conqueror has risen. And as the stone is rolled away and Christ emerges from the grave, this victory march continues till the day. Every eye and heart shall see him. And that's what we're on, beloved. It's a victory march. All we're doing is just clearing. We're cleaning up after the war. It's already been, it's already been done. We're on the victory march. You've got to keep that in mind in the midst of this race to press on knowing that you're on the victory march. And then lastly, number six, we should press on because the reward is so worth it. Because the, re- the reward is so worth it, so great. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, we have these seven letters... <laughs> from the risen Lord Jesus to seven different churches. And each letter is different, but the essential message is the same. He tells them to press on. And He motivates them to do so by telling them of the rewards that await those who overcome. And so for our last few minutes here, I just want us to forget about the here and now. Forget about what's going on right now in this life and focus our eyes on the finish line. Like Peter says in 1 Peter 1, to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is this grace that's coming? What is this imperishable inheritance that awaits those who press on? Let's look at some passages here. Revelation 2, verse 7. Middle of the verse. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So eating from the tree of life. Verse 11. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So deliverance from hell. Deliverance from the second death. Verse 17. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So this personal giving of a new name, signifying the beginning of a new life. New name, new life, new existence. Verse 26, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds good. (laughs) Sometimes you just have to say, I don't know, but I'm ready. Chapter 3, verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. That one's a little easier to understand. 
all of the sin, even the things that, I mean, think about this, beloved. Having your conscience finally, finally, finally purified, cleansed. I mean, the sins that you know you're forgiven of but are still in there and you can't forget about them, gone. A white garment, perfectly clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. It's a promise. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Chapter 3, verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. And then the last one, verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant him, listen to this, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. It's unbelievable. Again, I say these are promises that await. This is part of the imperishable, undefiled inheritance that awaits those who finish the course, who press on. Not only that, let me read two other passages for you here. I'll just read these. This is from Revelation 21. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp. Nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will reign forever and ever. You know, sometimes it, it's helpful just to, to be reminded of what's coming. I mean, we just get so, and I'm so guilty of this. I've got so much, you know, you've got so much to do at work, things around the house, on and on and on. And sometimes, beloved, you just need to stop and to be reminded of what's coming. You need to be reminded of the goal, the finish line, of the inheritance that awaits those who faithfully continue on, who press on, who press on when the going gets hard, who press on. When times get rough, who press on and finish the course. So again, I say this morning, press on. The country that you came out of is not worth returning to. Every resource and supply that you need to finish the race is available to you. All you have to do is ask. There's refreshment along the way. He will come to us like the rain. God himself is with you always. 
Every enemy that you face is a defeated enemy. The plug has been pulled. And the reward that awaits you is so great, is so worth it. Let's pray. Lord, I just marvel at my unbelief in these areas and how we can get so uh, tied to this world and so tied to the things that are just right in front of us that we forget, Lord, uh, what You've done for us. We forget the amazing, the wonderful things, the awesome things that await those that are faithful. Lord, I pray that You'd open our eyes even now in a fresh way just to see the reality of these truths and to encourage us to press on. Lord, we thank You that You've promised to keep us. You've promised to sustain us, to keep us from stumbling, and to present us faultless before Your throne. Lord, help us this day to encourage one another towards that end. Help in these fellowship times this afternoon, Lord, that our conversation would be of You. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.